Welcome to the Week Ahead in Russia, RFURL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Andras Tatsifra, a political analyst who's based in New York and is the author of the blog No Yardstick. Uh, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, or CEPA, and a contributor to the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Bear Market Brief. Andres, uh, you were a guest way back in January of this year, January 3rd, uh, almost two months before Russia launched its large-scale invasion of Ukraine. Thanks very much for joining me again. Thank you. It's uh, very good to be here. And uh, indeed, it was a very, very different situation back then. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that was the time when there was, of course, a lot of talk about uh, the you know, Russia possibly invading with the U.S. warning about this. Um, and but um, it did happen and um, a lot of people didn't expect it. And a lot of the things that have developed since then, I mean, obviously, uh, kind of unspeakable horrors, but a lot of the things that have developed since then were not expected at the time. Um, so it's great to have you on the on the podcast again. Uh, now, I see you as an expert on Russia's regions and on the ways that Kremlin policy affects what's going on across Russia in the provinces uh, and vice versa, kind of how... Uh, what's going on in the provinces uh, affects President Vladimir Putin and his government and its actions. And last month you had a blog post, uh, again, this is on No Yardstick, titled Low on Capacity, in which, and correct me if I'm not describing this well, uh, but you looked at developments, including the mobilization that Putin uh, ordered or decreed in September, and developments in the war um, and how they've affected state capacity. Again, correct me if I'm if I'm misrepresenting, but in other words, uh, how they affected the ability of the Russian state to implement its policies. So I'd like to ask you about this. Basically, how is the war and, and these processes, uh, such as mobilization, uh, what what are their effects in Russia? Obviously, Putin and Russia have wreaked a staggering level of, of death and destruction in Ukraine. Uh, but at home, is the war threatening the government's ability to govern the country? And if this is the wrong question to ask, feel free to frame things in a different way and talk about what you've been finding. Um, I, I wouldn't say that this is the wrong question to ask, but uh, let me just give a little more context. It, it, we started with how different things were or looked like in January. Uh, in a way that is true, uh, you were completely right about many of many analysts uh, did not anticipate quiet was going to come. Um, however, um, a lot of the a lot of the uh, de uh, deficiencies, shortcomings of Russia's model of governance, of the Russian economy, how it was organized, how it was uh, sort of uh, the, the stewardship over the Russian economy um, were clear back then. And the analysts were accurate about uh, expecting a uh, large, expecting a full-scale invasion uh, to put a huge strain on these systems. Um, and just as we see... Um, a lot of um, 
processes that were present before uh, February 2022 in the Russian economy, um, having sped up, for instance, uh, Russia's uh, loss of status as a as an energy superpower, um, which was going to happen at some point, but uh, the uh, but but the war itself and the uh, response to the war. Uh, from the part of uh, the European Union and the United States uh, accelerated this process. And in the same way, uh, endemic problems with Russia's system of governance were laid bare and were exacerbated uh, by how the war has been going and and, 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 uh, how... Uh, domestically, uh, Russia has been trying to. The Russian leadership has been trying to, uh, uh, trying to to, to uh, respond to these challenges. So my point, even before the war, I think would have been that there has for a long time been a tension between uh, short-termism and long-termism in Russian policymaking. What I mean by that is that uh, state capacity, as such, which is uh, the uh, capacity of the state to sort of implement policies, to to carry out um, uh, to carry out visions, uh, to um, uh, to sort of provide uh, to 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 fulfill basic functions of the state, from healthcare to uh, oppressive capacity. There are various kinds of state capacities. Uh, so that this kind of state capacity did exist in Russia and does exist in Russia. But this is either in uh, some isolated pockets. So we have seen, for instance, the central bank uh, is one of these pockets, or indeed the tax service, which under uh, current prime minister Mikhail Mishustin uh, implemented a program that made it much more efficient. Or you, we can talk about, or, or we could uh, mention the Gasuslugi state. Uh, 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 so sort of government services system, online government services system, or the state capacity is performative. What I mean by that is that uh, when the state wants to be coercive, it can be coercive at certain at certain important times and certain important uh, parts of the state, but not always and everywhere. Um, so it needs to rely on uh, sort of these performative acts cracking down on a specific sort of dissent, for instance, or uh, cracking down on specific high-profile opposition uh, figures or cracking down randomly on protesters in order to, 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 to seem bigger than it actually is. So for uh, to give you a recent example, uh, the Ministry of Justice uh, will start publishing information, personal information on people who are deemed uh, foreign agents by the Russian government, which is... Uh, for those who don't know, is is a label often used to uh, sort of uh, uh, they often used on the uh, on dissidents of of, of any sort or uh, or uh, independent journalists, and um, it, we have seen such uh, tactics used in the wild, you know, with a degree of plausible deniability, where people's personal details were leaked, uh, published, and they then uh, suffered uh, harassment. Um, this is going to be the first time that uh, the state is publishing these details uh, itself and officially. 
And uh, this sort of raises the specter of vigilante violence or... So this is, this is the, what, what I call the performative uh, state capacity, where, when you want to be bigger than you actually are. And so how does this come to play uh, in the current situation? So over the past years, uh, Putin uh, has been more and more concentrating on foreign policy, uh, on Russia's place in the world. And he um, gradually sort of faded into background in domestic politics in the sense that he was still obviously still there. But uh, the minutiae of uh, domestic politics, how the state was governed, was uh, uh, gradually uh, given over to the government. And um, together with this, we have seen a conscious effort to make the system run itself. So this was, again, tied to Prime Minister Mishustin. But in reality, what we have seen is that even though Mishustin and his government have been building a system that relies on large-scale data collection, on, um, on, on, on sort of uh, collecting information on various subsystems from you know, regional politics to various uh, uh, economic um, uh, sectors uh, to be able to react before something gets out of hand, uh, in fact, the system itself really, the, the way it works in practice, really keeps relying on personal relationships, people thinking up solutions that are rather, you know, haphazard, uh, and on manual control. Governors, uh, when they are appointed by the federal center, usually come up in with their own team uh, and because they find it difficult to uh, sort of... Um, uh, govern a region where they are not part of the elite, so they bring in their own people. Uh, they are often looking for cues from the center. What, how far can we go? What can we do? What is expected of us? Their fiscal space is very dependent on on um, uh, relationships with the center and specifically with the president. I would say more and more dependent because uh, due to the war. Um, tax receipts, uh, including the two most important tax receipts that uh, regions rely on, the corporate income tax and the uh, personal income tax, have, uh, for, uh, they are both falling. Corporate income tax uh, started falling earlier than personal income taxes, but that is also coming. So the, so, so to, to summarize it, I, I, I would say that uh, the, um, these efforts to 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 make this a sort of a well-run system that is able that, that that the federal government is able to oversee and able to sort of manipulate quite easily uh, isn't really uh, it, it, that has run against the basic instincts that such a very highly centralized and very personalistic system has created. So um, the, what what we have actually seen and this is where I come to the mobilization military mobilization is that um, uh, the Russian government is trying to do a thing or trying to basically do a thing that, that has already failed during uh, the COVID crisis, failed in, uh, in practice in terms of state capacity, although it works for the regime, uh, namely that, they, um, uh, that governors are made responsible for uh, figuring out how and where they are going to 
uh, implement the, uh, the, the the policies to um, to get the results that the state wants to see from them. In that particular case, it was uh, you know lockdown policies, basically, or restrictions. They lockdown was after a while a dirty word shouldn't be used but but restrictions of movement and then vaccinations and the state gave them um uh, sort of results that they had to achieve but uh when it came to how to achieve them and what uh, uh what uh, means were used to achieve them was more or less left up to governors and um we see that we see more or less the same with mobilization now uh, in that uh, governors are playing a very uh, outsized role in military mobilization. And uh, uh, part of the reason why I think uh, they're like more, the, the Putin issued no dec- no decree uh, ending mobilization is that uh, the expectation is that in regions where it can continue with a fairly low level of risk, it, it will continue. And uh, in regions where uh, where the local governor deems that it's too risky to mobilize, draft more people because there is organized resistance or there is, uh, um, I, I, they, or, 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 or it's not risky, but uh, uh, it would um, affect key industries uh, then it will stop or it will be on pause. But sort of it gives the, just like, just like during COVID, there was no clear end to, uh, to uh, movement restrictions or the vaccination uh, drive. It, this is, there's no end for mobilization. Only now, of course, this is, this, this, uh, touches nerves much more because the stakes are much higher. Uh, you can't, like, uh, the, 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 there's, there's simply more at stake for governors as well as for citizens. So, uh, so far, I would say that to answer your initial question, that the situation hasn't really, hasn't really uh, made it impossible uh, for this system of governance to run, because uh, what we have seen so far is more or less expected people blame governors uh, for the failures of mobilization. Uh, they like record video uh, uh, video messages to them, and then governors do what they want with those messages and they those complaints. And they have been reacting in rather different ways to to them. Uh, and it's up to them. This is how the system is supposed to be run. But uh, over time, uh, as uh, regions run out of financial resources and uh, uh, over time as uh, sort of uh, dissatisfaction runs from region to region and some regions have very, very different capacities to sort of uh, uh, alleviate these uh, this discontent and others, uh, this may become significantly more uh, more difficult. And mobilization is open-ended. It's not, uh, and the war is open-ended. It's just very difficult to to um, uh, sort of uh, plan either if you're a governor or if you're a, um, uh, an enterprise 
uh, working for uh, working in a specific region. So it's 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 more it's it's more difficult to sort of manage expectations of what is about to come than during COVID. So this is what I mean when I say that state capacity uh, or the problems with state capacity are laid bare, and uh, this is a bigger crisis than COVID. It's very interesting. Uh, the one thing I just mentioned is kind of. Uh, you mentioned the difference between performative, I guess, state capacity, including these essentially crackdowns, um, uh, this development that they're going to start naming and, and, and uh, issuing details, information about uh, so-called uh, foreign agents um, and, and kind of real state capacity or, or you know, abilities to to implement policies. Um, and also, I mean, the, the very interesting comparison with the COVID or, or um, with the COVID situation. I mean, it struck me at the time when COVID began to, uh, you know, to, to appear in Russia, that this was going to be kind of a big test of a leader who has uh, in many ways kind of run on propaganda. And this was kind of a real crisis that was coming and, the test of, of his ability to deal with it. And now we have a new crisis uh, that's entirely made by the leader, but um, is, uh, is again testing, testing it, testing state capacity. And, and, it, and as you say, it's kind of, it's open-ended. It's, uh, you know, it's a bigger, it's a bigger crisis than COVID. And it's one that uh, we really don't know um, when it's going to end. So, but thanks very much for those for those insights. Now, in addition to state capacity, uh, you wrote uh, about regime capacity, which you described as the ability of the government to provide favorable outcomes for the group whose active cooperation it needs to govern. So, I guess that would be sort of the elites, the, the uh, people around Putin in, in kind of circles that that go out from the Kremlin. Um, and you wrote that regime capacity in Russia was declining. Now, this was about a month ago after a strikingly successful Ukrainian counteroffensive um, in the Kharkiv region and part of the Donetsk region in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and that was one of numerous setbacks for Russia on the battlefield. And since then, uh, there have been more. There's been at least one more major setback for Moscow, um, the Russian retreat from Kherson in the south uh, and the right bank of the uh, Dnieper River there, or Dnipro. Um, and, and Kherson, of course, was the only regional capital that Russian forces had managed to seize since the invasion in February. And we've seen clear signs uh, in, in the so-called Russian elites, uh, not of opposition to the war, but of dismay uh, over how it's going for Russia. And that there are various, uh, you know, various kind of tenors to this, uh, uh, to this dismay. Um, so I guess the question I'd ask is, how is uh, regime capacity looking at this moment? So I, first of all, I think we should uh, separate, so we should make a distinction between federal elites and lower level elites, or like even, even down to people who are co-opted by the regime. So uh, about federal elites, uh, I, I am not going to speculate because there are uh, uh, many sort of better uh, 
informed people, so to say, uh, who have been writing uh, excellent articles about how uh, the developments of the past couple of months have uh, created or exacerbated existing doubts uh, in federal elites. Um, but when we go down to, when we, when we look at the whole system as it works, so as a whole, and not just the people around Putin who we think may or may not be able to influence him or may, not, may or may not be able to conduct a coup, uh, if, if, if the situation gets there. So if we just look at the whole regime, um, one of the, um, like, there, there are various complex um, uh, sort of relationships that uh, understandings, underlying understandings that uh, the system's capacity to exercise power relies on. And this is not just uh, people sitting in Moscow, this is also people sitting in the regions, people also sitting in uh, know, municipalities or regional governments. And um, what I was, uh, what I was trying to uh, highlight was that um, apparently uh, there have been these rumors that um, even, uh, even, even officials, lower level officials, we're finding it suddenly difficult to get their relatives, their sort of extended family, friends, or so on, out of uh, military mobilization, and uh, the, the pressure was simply too big, and uh, or the, the system clogged up, and their uh, sort of uh, calls did not get through. Um, what this does is that it uh, sort of erodes the willingness of. Uh, of the people whose uh, active cooperation is needed to govern because the system is not able to guarantee favorable outcomes for them uh, at crucial moments. So uh, another such, uh, another such uh, thing that uh, uh, Margaliotti highlighted recently was that uh, there is less upwards mobility from the regions to Moscow. And, uh, that's something that that also uh, sort of makes people in these lower rungs uh, feel like they uh, are stuck where they are, and uh, that they have to sort of find ways uh, to get ahead where they are. And uh, in situations in which uh, uh, you know the, the regional governing system is uh, uh, relies on basically people who are um, who are federal officials or officials from other regions uh, posted to regions and um, and, and they uh, need a certain degree of acquiescence of the uh, either the local um, security elite or the local um, uh, business elite to govern uh, this might create situations in which there is uh, uh, there is um, uh, sort of the uh, where, where where loyalties are going to get questioned. So uh, I'm not saying that this has already started, although there are have there have been uh, uh, in the past couple of years, not since the war specifically, but in the past couple of years, we have seen uh, uh, indications of where um, uh, regional officials or local officials sided with local. Uh, either protesters or 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 uh, made deals with local business. So, uh, 
that's what I mean when I'm. Uh, we, we, this is happening at the same time as these regional officials are asked to sort of carry out a growing number of uh, functions, and mobilization was just one of them. Uh, but uh, they, they they also uh, they also have to keep. Um, uh, local economies running. They have to make sure that there are no uh, crippling um, uh, problems with uh, with labor, for instance, strikes. Um, they have to make sure that uh, there are no empty shelves in um, stores. That's something that Putin uh, told them in, I think, April, soon after the uh, economic trouble started because of the uh, because of sanctions. Um, so they have to do all this. And, and now uh, they, uh, like some of them will have uh, more uh, sort of leeway legally to ensure that uh, they are able to, uh, that they are able to carry out these functions. Putin's degree on uh, partial martial law, uh, as I call it, uh, which uh, Established the different the varying degrees of readiness in uh, in Russian regions uh, uh, based on how close they are to the, the front end war um, has uh, accorded to governors varying degrees of extra powers to make sure that uh, the for instance the military's needs are are catered to but there's a lot that you can sort of shove into those extra powers if you want to if you really have that inclination and if uh, uh and and if as i have mentioned uh you are trying to get ahead locally because you can't expect to uh to 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 enjoy that upwards mobility in your career so um so this is one thing. And the other thing that I think is important to mention uh, with the elites, uh, be they federal or local, is that, um, is that timelines are shifting. Uh, and in, in a way, they have already shifted over the summer. So it's not, uh, it, it, there, are, there, there were uh, long-term costs that uh, a couple of months ago might have seemed avoidable, but there but that are not avoidable anymore. So uh, various export, mark, ex export markets, for instance, or um, uh, capital expenditures in the regions that sort of underpin uh, investment where at a time when uh, investment comes from nowhere else because of uh, the uh, general uncertainty. Uh, so these are long-term costs that are lost for, uh, for economic elites. Uh, people who um, are active in regions and um, also for federal officials. So um, as long as things are going reasonably well uh, and there is, and the dominant narrative is that Russia is either winning this war or at least is able to drag it out for long enough that in the end it will either grind down the West and Ukraine and uh, uh, and slash or also win it, uh, then the opponents of the war, the opponents of the regime are, uh, their best strategy is to remain silent because they would be speaking against the, the narrative, right? Like if, obviously not everyone will, but most of the people will 
out of fear. And the supporters of the regime or the sort of who are uh, just enjoyers of the regime or enjoyers of the, uh, of the situation will uh, stick with it and will keep supporting the regime. But the problem is when this narrative is questioned. And I think the two offensives, that the Kharkiv counteroffensive and the Kherson counteroffensive, questioned uh, this narrative. And that can trigger uh, changes that, we are, that are difficult to foresee, but that, so, but, but that sort of um, uh, tells people in Russia that uh, they are... Uh, that what what they have been hearing about the war and what they have been uh, expecting might not be true, and the, the war m- may have been longer, and the costs may have been higher, or may be higher in the future than they anticipated. All right. So thanks, thanks a lot for that. And I guess um, one thing that you're talking about is kind of a, kind of a, a tension between the the fact that. Um, on the regional level, uh, leaders are being asked to, to do more uh, and to do a lot of things. But at the same time, there's, there's less upward mobility um, and uh, also, I guess, increasing kind of questions about, about the future. Um, I am going to uh, turn to questions now. Uh, and we have... Uh, one question that's come in uh, from looks like Stephen Jones. Um, the question is, I mean, it's, it's kind of about these tensions. Um, it, the question is, how much confidence should we have in the recent Newsweek story about the leaked email from? Uh, an FSB agent whistleblower wind of change, I guess I would add reported, in which it was claimed that Russia is facing a, quote, inevitable civil war, and Russia will soon, quote, descend into the abyss of terror, unquote, as people grow increasingly tired of war. So I guess there's kind of the kernel of this question is, you know, are these tensions, um, you know, leading toward civil war? I have been, uh, I would be very um, cautious about uh, trusting any sort of uh, leaks at this point from the FSB. We have seen uh, a lot of these stories uh, over the past um, 10 months. And um, uh, I, I, look, what I would what I would advise is always to 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 look for like these these stories come out for a reason, but it doesn't so it it, it is uh, it is worth uh, analyzing them or it's worth uh, looking at them and reading them, but it's not. I would I would I would advise against taking them at face value. So, what I can tell about uh, the like civil war and the FSB is that uh, for a while now, for a long while now. Um, uh, Russia's domestic politics have been securitized. The language has been uh, the sort of the way the way Russia, the Russian government regards domestic politics, uh, have been taken over by the language of national security. So, what does that mean? It means that uh, an increasing array of uh, things of uh, uh, policies that would otherwise be um, 
regarded as just policies, so from cultural policies to environmental movements, have been regarded as suspect, as uh, somehow uh, directed from abroad or directed by subversive elements and and um, uh, and sort of a threat to, to, to Russia's national security. This is good for the uh, for the security elite because it, it allows them to sort of increase their clout uh, domestically. Indeed, uh, besides the the military, uh, the other two groups that uh, the other two groups of officials that seem to be untouchable when it comes to uh, to, to budget cuts uh, are the presidential administration, obviously and the Bureau of Defined Security Services, the Silaviki. Um, their allocations are growing very steeply, uh, and uh, that, is, uh, th- that is both a, uh, uh, an indication of, uh, of, of the, 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 the sort of the anxiety of uh, the government of how well or not or unwell things are going, and and, and, and what is ahead, and also um, the um, an indication of uh, this increased clout, and that is based on this sort of security-focused view on domestic politics. Uh, so, you know, any lead that suggests that the FSB is uh, is uh, expecting a civil war uh, should be, I think, viewed through this lens, uh, but. I don't think or I don't see an indication at all that uh, Russia is uh, in the foreseeable future going to um, descend into a civil conflict as many many are suggesting along, I don't know, ethnic lines or, 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 or along the lines of certain regions breaking away from the center. It's, um, I might be wrong about this, of course, but um, I just don't see anything suggesting that Presently, since uh, regional elites uh, are uh, co-opted, very strongly co-opted, uh, and they uh, have a very low degree of fiscal independence and uh, control over resources, um, obviously there are different, like there are exceptions, um, uh, like Chechnya, for instance, uh, which, on the one hand, has uh, a uh, has a has a history of uh, independence uh, of an independence struggle and a uh, like a very localized uh, elite, uh, but on the other hand is uh, very dependent on uh, transfers from Moscow. So, uh, and and and, the, and then there are um, uh, there are other examples like uh, uh, Tatarstan, which uh, has uh, significantly more uh, resources than Chechnya. On the other hand, its elite is very well integrated into the Russian elite. So whenever we talk about these, uh, we talk about the chances of Russia just falling apart, we should consider whether it would make sense uh, for the people who actually wield power or who could wield power uh, in uh, a certain region. And I just don't see any indication right now, even though I obviously need to acknowledge that there are nascent independent independence um, movements that have been uh, sort of boosted by the the toll of the war on certain uh, certain regions and certain ethnic groups in Russia uh, or the perception that uh, that that the war is somehow uh, 
somehow just trying to pick a, a word very carefully the war is somehow sort of eliminating uh, uh, consciously eliminating uh, certain ethnic groups in Russia which uh, is a narrative that has come up uh, in certain poorer regions where uh, that have been uh, indeed um, that have suffered indeed uh, a, a bigger toll um, uh, and because their uh, their uh, uh, men were overrepresented in the army, right? So, but it's right now it stops there, and 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 Russia is not going to. I, I seriously doubt that Russia is going to fall apart tomorrow or or uh, as soon as the war is lost. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot for that detailed answer um, uh, to it. Uh, to that question, um, yeah, and, and I guess as you're saying, um, you know, there are these tensions, there are these these problems, uh, you know, the, the disproportionate representation in, in the in the military, and, and I guess in the um, you know on the front itself, uh, and in the in, and frankly in the in the, um, the the body bags that are coming back, you know, of certain of certain regional and and, and ethnic groups, um, but but you know this is not necessarily going to translate into some kind of action um so thanks a lot for the for that for that response uh, and uh happy to take uh, more questions um so i'll give it a few moments uh, once again if you'd like to ask a question you can uh, hit the button in the twitter space to request to speak or send a direct message or um, post your question as, as a reply, um, hit the reply button in the, in the Twitter space. Okay, looks like we have one coming in, just a minute. Bear with me. Appreciate your patience. Um, we do have time for always this one question. Okay, so um, I'm not. This one, uh, I think it's a bit off topic. What assistance is being provided to countries being targeted by Kremlin influence ops? So I'm not sure. Um, I, it, oh, I don't know. sorry. That, that may be a question. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead if you if you want to respond. But but it's, no, it's, it's, I, I just want I just want to highlight that it's 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 a little um it's a little vague, right? Like I I'm not sure. Uh, it'd be like uh, what are we talking about? Who is providing assistance? Uh, like who? who uh, like what what assistance is being provided by who? Uh, and uh, I mean Kremlin influence ops. Um, uh, what kind of of Kremlin influence operations are we talking about? Information operations, or uh, or or uh, you know, political influence operations, or or espionage, or there are so many uh, different ways in which uh, this uh, can be phrased. So I, I, at this point, I just don't know what question to answer. Yeah, that's fine. Um, let Let me just. Uh, I I'd like to ask a question that occurred to me during your. During your your first uh, 
your first response to, to my first question, which is you mentioned this kind of performative um, state capacity, um, I guess, essentially uh, doing things like cracking down uh, on so-called foreign agents and that sort of thing. So essentially the clampdown and then the other kind of state capacity. So my question is sort of does the the kind of, I guess, what I would call negative or forceful, the use of force essentially by the state to get things that it wants done, to, to suppress the opposition and dissent, does that kind of take away from the state's ability to, um, to implement policy in, in things that are essentially positive, such as health care, uh, that sort of thing? I mean, it certainly does in the sense that the uh, that that uh, the, the the budgetary allocations that go to that go on uh, security services is uh, uh, do, do not do not go elsewhere. Same same thing with the military, obviously. Yes, with the war, like the war also takes away uh, the, um, uh, the the Russian budget's ability uh, to. Uh, to, to ensure uh, that the, the, the state is a, uh, a positive actor and uh, the state uh, uh, maintains these big uh, systems of uh, uh, that the people rely on from healthcare and education to uh, investment into infrastructure and so on. So what, like, if you look at, um, and, and now I'm talking about the federal budget, but uh, the, uh, but obviously the regional budget, uh, the regional budgets, uh, depends uh, increasingly on the federal budget in times when uh, at times when um, uh, their own revenues are falling so um, what were what were caught to for like at the very beginning when uh, revenue started falling this year in the federal budget were uh, outlays on um, on uh, uh, Science and technology, on transportation, uh, on various other uh, investments. Uh, one of the um, uh, even even goals that were defined just months ago, like for instance, when the, uh, uh, the, the, the when Western sanctions and the withdrawal of Western companies from Russia um, uh, sort of collapsed the Russian uh, uh, automotive industry. Uh, the first answer of Putin was to uh, to instruct the government to uh, come up with a new sort of development strategy for the uh, for the industry. And on the side, he also said that uh, maybe um, uh, uh, the like uh, just car ownership should be helped by building more. Uh, gas stations across the regions, which I'll, I will leave it up to everyone to decide whether or not this would have worked the way it intended. But, uh, but, what I'm, but my point is that uh, months later, exactly this kind of uh, program was uh, cut down. So between April and I don't know when exactly it happened, maybe September or October, um, the state took a complete U-turn on like this. This is a small thing. But it is emblematic of, of larger uh, policies being uh, uh, sort of sacrificed on the altar of uh, providing more sources, more resources for the uh, security uh, services and 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 police and the uh, and riot police and so on, because the state's view 
uh, is on on domestic politics is informed not by uh, the necessity of of uh, like it's it, it, the, the view the view that the state takes domestic politics is, is through security and it's not through uh, providing uh, various services. That's actually left with often left with governors again. Um, to ensure that these uh, uh, sort of vital services that the state provides, which of course is also a major focus of regional budgets, uh, education, uh, social aid, and uh, and healthcare, that these do not collapse uh, enough to sort of lead to uh, to uh, protests or, or 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 discontent that can spread to. Uh, spread be, spread beyond uh, control, uh, but that's but the, but but it's a choice, and 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 therefore yes, it certainly does negatively affect the ability to uh, to build state capacity in sort of more benign ways. All right, thanks very much. That that's fascinating. Um... Uh, it seems like sort of a major problem that that existed in Russia long before the invasion. Um, so thanks for that. Um, okay, let's wrap it up here. Um, Andras, thanks very much for joining me again. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, once again, I've been speaking to Andras Tosifra, a New York-based political analyst who is the author of the blog No Yardstick, a non-resident fellow at SIPA, and a contributor contributor, sorry, to FPRI's Bear Market Brief. Uh, and my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFARL. As I mentioned, this conversation will be published as a podcast, and you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other RFARL podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be back for another installment of The Week Ahead in Russia on November 28th. Uh, and please keep an eye out for the next edition of my newsletter, The Week in Russia, on December 2nd, on Friday. Thank you for listening. <laughs>